Welcome to Philosophy, the intersection of meaning and money. We live in a world of an abundance of stuff, but a scarcity of meaning and purpose. On Philosophy, we explore how a philosophy of life can help us pursue meaningful endeavors and prepare for the future while enjoying today. Money is entangled in almost every aspect of modern life, so any serious inquiry for self-knowledge and personal development requires an exploration of the meaning of money. We'll learn from business leaders, entrepreneurs, philosophers, investors, historians, and others to help us think better, work better, invest better, build better, and live better. This show is brought to you by Vermillion Private Wealth. Thanks for being a part of this quest. Welcome to Philosophy. I'm James Vermillion, and today's guest is Jordan Goldstein. Today's conversation is all about the body and how physicality relates to a life well-lived. Dr. Goldstein recently left behind his life as a college professor of ancient sport history and philosophy and started FIA Academy to spread a message of optimism through physical challenge. Jordan brings a unique historical and philosophical perspective on the meaning of sport both to the individual and to society. He's an accomplished researcher and an expert on both ancient and modern sports. Our wide-ranging conversation has something for everyone. Enjoy. Jordan, hello. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, James. Thank you so much for inviting me to have this really uh, interesting and important conversation. It is interesting, and it is important. And I, first off, I want to give you props on the beard. That is... Uh, very impressive. This is about this couple day stubble is about as much as, as you'll see from me, but <laughs> but respects on the beard. Thank you. It's actually uh, the shortest it's been in about two and a half years. So I appreciate that's the, a, I appreciate the that's comments. incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> well, good. You know, I think this topic might at at first baffle listeners a little bit. It's a little bit off topic for me. Um, although I love going off topic because uh, that's kind of I, I love breadth much more than I love depth in a lot of ways. So. I'm excited to, to kind of venture out here, but I think, um, and I hope, and I'm fairly confident that as this conversation progresses, um, it will become a little more evident of why it's important and kind of how it links to the broader context of this show, which is really about living better and and thinking about money and wealth and, and stuff outside of, 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 you know, the normal context that we, we typically do. So very excited to, to chat with you. And, uh, I say we just jump in here, and I want to start with a basic topic because we're going to, we're going to be talking about sport, competition, athletics, the body, those sort of things. And I, I would just like to go go bare bones here, really start from the bottom and, and and build a nice foundation, a framework, and go from there. Why sports? Why why are sports important? What's the purpose? Well, that's a really big question, and you certainly aimed nicely with breadth on, on that one. Um, I think I'd like to to take it in a direction that's related to the thrust of, of your podcast. You talked about wealth or or building wealth or richness or, or what is what is what does that mean? You know, when I hear wealth, I don't necessarily think material things, even though that's what mostly pops into the head of heads of people uh, these days. I thinking more about a richness of experience. I'm thinking about a life that's well lived. I'm thinking about a a, a fulfilled individual maximizing their potential and spreading as much wisdom and creativity and joy into the world as as they possibly can. So in thinking about that, the question of why sports 
becomes a little bit different than what you would normally assume. Why sports? When we look to see the role that sports are um, are filling in our society, it's mostly a consumption type of a relationship that, that we have with sports. It's watching sports. It's playing fantasy sports. It's uh, video video games, right? Gambling. It, <laughs> shoot, gambling, right? When So when we think about why sports superficially or sort of off of the first the first um idea that pops into most people's heads it's entertainment it's consumption okay right that those aren't necessarily wrong but if we're trying to get to a deeper understanding and especially uh from my vantage as a historian and a philosopher of sport as a historian i'm very interested in context and i want to know where these come from where do sports come from if i'm trying to answer the question why sports that's the first place that I look. So why sports? No, rather than give you my answer, I'll give you the Greek answer. Because the ancient Greeks, the classical Greeks, they're the ones who gave us competitive athletics for the sake of competitive athletics. Right? We do these just to compete. We run, we run a race just to see who's the fastest. Uh, we do a wrestling competition to see who's got the best technique or who's the toughest. Um, and their idea of athletics really relates nicely to the thrust of this show. And this idea of living richly. The point of athletics is to aim us, each individual, towards our greatest potential. Sports is a means for personal development as a way for us to live the fullest life that we possibly can. And for the Greeks, that meant uniting body and mind together. So sports allows us to bring the best of our physical components. It allows us to bring the best of our intelligence, our knowledge, but it also allows us to bring our spiritual gifts, our resiliency, our grit, our determination, hope in the face of, of fear or defeat. All of these important moral foundations as well are brought to us uh, or, or are, are experienced and realized and lived uh, through sport. So, so when you ask why sport, that's my answer. Personal development. To help each individual reach and obtain their, their fullest potential by forcing them into discomfort, struggle, sacrifice in order to then achieve excellence in both bo in body, mind, and spirit. I think you brought up a good point there towards the end, something I've been thinking a little bit about lately. We tend to compartmentalize things a whole lot these days, and I think when people work out and they set goals for going to the gym or dieting, they're really separating mind from body. Most people, they say, I'm going to work out. Like I'm going to go build my biceps or I'm going to go today's leg day. I'm going to, I'm going to work on my legs. And I think that's fine. I don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing, but I, I really like your point about exercising and combining the mind and the body because every time you compete uh, or, or work out or just use your body, uh, you, there's not necessarily a separation that that we we make. It's not like when you're reading a book, you're using your mind, and when you're working out, you're using your body. When you're working out, you're using a whole heck of a lot of things. And I recently read a, uh, the Inner Game of Tennis, which on the surface is a tennis book, but when you start reading it, you're like, holy hell, this is an incredible psychology book. Um, and that was a good part of that book was so much of competing is mental, um, and and it really consumes. A, a lot of brain power, a lot of mind power, a lot of emotional um, intelligence is required to be successful. So I, I really love your answer. You covered a ton there, and I think we can we can start to dive in. 
you mentioned uh, your background a little bit um, as far as what you study. What led you to looking at athletics and sport from an ancient kind of philosophical um, way? Because I that's when I started reading some of your stuff, I was kind of blown away. I've never heard that perspective before. I'd never really considered it outside of the history a little bit that we that we learn in school. But it's a really interesting kind of niche area of study, and I, I really think it's cool. I, I have a bit of a funny journey in the academy. So I have a PhD in kinesiology, but I cannot identify the muscles of the body for you on it. On, 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 like you just give me a basic diagram of the body. I can't tell you what the bones are called. I can't tell you the muscles. I can't tell you what's connected to what. So I'm a very poor kinesiologist, right? In terms of, I have this, I have a, I'm a doctor of kinesiology, but I'm ignorant of the body. All right. So then, so what is this? How, how does this make any sense? I'm a historian, right? I come from the history departments. Like that's where I did my undergrad. That's where I did my, my, my masters. And I was always interested in the connection between national identity and particular sports. Why do Brazilians love soccer? Why do Americans love American football? I'm Canadian. So it's obvious. Like why do Canadians love hockey? Right. I've always been fascinated by that, by, by that connection because it's so obvious and apparent when you watch these international sporting competitions or these in in the in the United States for example like the Super Bowl. Have you ever sat down and watched like the entire 4-hour pregame of the Super Bowl? Like I'm sure you sure you haven't. But No, definitely if, not. If you have, one thing that they do every single year is they read out the founding of the 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 country. They literally verbatim will read out the Declaration of Independence and teach you about the founding of America. At the same time, they're exporting American consumerism and American exceptionalism through sport, right? So the Super Bowl is the biggest annual commercial for America and Americana because football is this representation of American values, American character, American dreams and, and, and aspirations like it's that we're talking about that big of a of a foundation um, right so I was always just like when how did this happen how did sports and national culture become such a a strong mix and, and in Canada it's if we don't have hockey we really don't have much as a country that that binds us together culturally and it's a bit of a of a stereotype and a cliche and you're kind of laughing uh, a little bit and, and, and it's correct. Um, but that's sort of like, that's what drove me into that interest. So um, I did my PhD studying the connection between national identity and, and, and hockey in Canada. And I did that through the donation of the Stanley cup. So if we got hockey fans out there, like the NHL Stanley cup is the trophy that's given out uh, at the end of the NHL season. It's the greatest trophy in, in all of professional sports, but it predates the NHL by 25 years. And it was donated by the governor, sixth governor general of Canada to be the, the national hockey trophy of, of Canada. So I studied that donation and the political motivations. So that led me into teaching sport history and sport philosophy. And that's when I came into contact with the ancient stuff because I had to start teaching we call it the womb to the tomb course in terms of like the history and philosophy of sport all the way from the very beginning, all the way up to the very contemporary. So then I had to start learning about the, the ancients, where sport came from, what it was doing in, in their society. And I was able to make so many strong and profound connections to the time of the ancient Greeks, 
which is not my particular time period, to the time of Victorian Britain, which that is my time period. Um, and the Victorian Brits were the ones who resuscitated sport. They gave it a modern shine, I guess you could say, and really thought that they were the inheritors of this ancient Greek um, lineage. So to me, then it became a natural connection to the knowledge that I already had about the sort of the 19th century in sport, really understanding well what was driving those people in the 19th century were these ancient ideals of what sport did and what it meant in those ancient societies. So I began to teach and then I began to become very interested on this in this stuff um, on, on my own. Uh, and then I just started to try and I started doing a little bit of of research into the links between ancient, ancient mythology, ancient sport, ancient philosophy, and how that led to the emergence of a politics of individualism and a flourishing of, of, of liberty. And so that's kind of like my been more of my message moving forward, uh, as opposed to some of the national culture and sports stuff, which I am technically an expert in, uh, to more of the ancient sports stuff, which I'm not, I'm not an expert in, but I feel is more applicable to our lives. And um, one of the things that I've really focused on as an academic is not being so much of an academic, <laughs> trying not to be, trying not to live in the world of ideas, but trying to take those ideas and, and apply them so that they have real world value. So I did that uh, through communicating to my students. And what was neat about my experience there is I'm a historian I'm in a kinesiology department. All my kids are science kids. Like I'm in a faculty of science, or I was. I don't, I don't teach at university anymore. Um, right. But when I did, I was in a science faculty. And as I mentioned previously, I, I just don't know anything about science. I'm a hist- I'm just a simple historian. Um, so the kids coming into my class, they all want to be physical therapists, physiotherapists, doctors. Like they want to apply scientific knowledge to the body to help people's lives. And they're forced to, to take my class in first year. They're forced to come and take history and philosophy. So I had to figure out a way to communicate to those students what the value of this information was to their program and to their, their future occupations and ultimately to their lives because the vast majority of those students were athletes themselves. So it became a way for me to connect the knowledge to their experiences and then project out in the future why that would be important. So that's sort of how I've come to this place where now I'm communicating this ancient knowledge on Twitter in sort of like a, a coaching and consulting business. Um, it's a way to apply this knowledge to allow people to live better lives in body, mind, and spirit today. Well, I love that. And I, th- I think that's really the key, right? There's there's so much information coming at us from all angles. Um, it's really easy, I think, to kind of get bombarded and really submit to to paying attention to only what's new, right? What's exciting, what's fresh, the newest thing. Uh, and, and sometimes we forget about some of the, what, what I think is oftentimes common sense, but I, I don't know if that's really an accurate description. I think a lot of it's really ancient wisdom that's been kind of carried forward through generations and tons of change. And I think we need to give a little bit more credence and pay a little bit more attention to many of those lessons. And I and that that comes from me. And I'm I'm a futurist. Like I love technology and stuff like that. But I also think it's really important to recognize that the technology of the past is where these ideas came from. Um, and it's important that we don't just abandon them for for whatever is is novel today and whatever's interesting right now in the moment, because we we can lose a lot of important messages, a lot of important 
uh, lessons that have been passed down for for thousands of years, going back to to ancient Greek uh, and ancient Rome and uh, well before that. So I think it's really cool how you tied tied things together in an in an important way for your students, and hopefully provided a little insight to them as well that. You know, yes, in the world of, of medical in particular, where the newest thing is the greatest and we're always trying to make these new breakthroughs, sometimes there's there's something to be said for looking back um, and, and maybe what worked for thousands of years might still work. We don't need to, need to throw that away. So so really cool. And let's can we make a, uh, a definition real quick? Sure. Can we just define sport like what you know, I think there could be confusion between sports and games or, or competition. What, what how do you define sport? So when I'm talking about sport, like broadly, especially like if you come to my Twitter feed, when I say sport, I mean broad physical activity. That's kind of what I mean. The philosopher in me wants a um, a particular definition, right? So, th- so if we want to get down to a, a drill down to a particular definition, like what is the difference between physical activity, exercise, and sport? Sport is a game. The thing that determines the winner or the loser of the game is physical. A sport has every single characteristic that a game has with an additional component that the, the, you know, that whatever it is that determines win or loss, that is physical. It's physical in nature. So something like, and people might make fun of it, but something like darts becomes a sport, right? Because darts is clearly a game where you're trying to accumulate points or you're trying to, what you're trying to get down to zero, whichever there's, there's different ways you can play it. But what determines that is a flicking motion of the wrist, right? And where this dart is going to land. So there's a physical motion that determines right. the outcome. Whereas something like chess, which people always call kind of like a sport of a mind, of the mind. And some people, and even though it is, I think, an officially recognized sport by the Olympics, I don't consider it a sport because your mind is the thing that determines what moves on the board. Yeah, maybe you, you, you someone might say, but yeah, you got to physically move the piece. And I, to that, I could say, even before the internet, people used to play mail by chess, uh, play chess by mail. Pardon me. Right, right. So you don't need a there. You don't even need a physical board to play chess, right? Right, right. Even though it is a game, and even though it's highly strategic, and it really does force you, especially if you watch like those the highest level chess competitors, like it is, it is something. They are doing something physical. Like I believe that. But what determines the win or the loss is not right. physical, and that's what differentiates a sport from sort of other competitive contests. Um, but a sport is a game. A sport has to have a winner and a loser. It has to have conditions. It has to have limitations, right? So in basketball, the one of the limitations is you got to dribble the ball. You can't just run up and down with it holding it. It's a lot easier to do that, but that's not what makes basketball fun. What makes basketball fun is that it's difficult to dribble the ball, to go around right. somebody, uh, and it would also be a lot easier if the net was only six feet six feet tall, right? Way easier to get in baskets, but because the 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 it is ten feet above the ground, that makes it harder. So right. we we love we need rules, but we also need constraints that make achieving whatever the goal of the game is harder. That's what makes a game fun is the is the constraints. Um, so a sport is just any kind of a game that's that 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 requires a physical action to produce the winner and the loser. Okay, I, I like that. I can buy that. Jordan, one of the things you've you've talked a lot about that really grabbed my attention is this idea, or or not even the idea, just the fact that 
sport in many ways has become totally, uh, for many people, not everybody, of course, but a, a, a spectator um, event. And I, I've thought a lot about this, you know, over the last several months and, and really even before that. Sports are so important for so many kids when they're growing up. It's a big part of their life, whether they whether they really train hard and and are in elite kind of acad- you know uh, academies and and elite coaching, or whether it's just getting home from school and playing a, a game of pickup basketball or or getting together a game of football with your friends, it's really important. It's it's a you know a, a, it builds camaraderie. Um, it's of course healthy physical activity and all that stuff. And then right when I think we need it most. When we're getting into adulthood and there are new stressors and there are new things to worry about and we're, we're shifting into this kind of more structured, have to go to work, have to pay your bills, relationships, like all of these things, we kind of abandon it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really detrimental to mental health, to emotional health. And I would just like, like to get your thoughts on that, um, if you kind of agree with my assessment, what what other thoughts you might have? I completely agree with that assessment. And it's an idea that I have to admit has been obsessing in my mind ever since I stumbled across it. Um, because one of the things that drives me is how do we help how do we help people fall in love again with moving their bodies? Because right. one as you mentioned, there's a big phenomenon, uh, and we kind of talked about it up up top of, uh, as well. When you just go to the to uh, a, a random person, like a random guy, uh, let's go to a sports bar or something. Like, so you go to a random guy and you say, "Are you a sports fan?" And they'll say, "Or, or you love sports?" They're going to say, "Absolutely." And your next question is maybe like, "Okay, so what sports do you play?" Well, I watch this. I watch this league. I play, no, no, no. But what what sports do you play? I'm in this fantasy. No, 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 no. What sports do you play? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, it's true. We make the connection between loving sports and loving the cons- the consumption, the consumption of sports. Now, I, there's a bunch of reasons for this, but the thing, the, the way I want to take this is there's a twofold answer. Um, there's there's two influences that I want to kind of talk about because one of the reasons why I think men or or just young adults in general are told to give up sports unless it's like you've made it to D1 or you're going pro unless you get to be one of those elite of the elite the people who are essentially now going to be performing for the spectators and the people con- consuming sport if you are not of that caliber if you are not of that seriousness you're done right you're done with sports now there's two kind of historical and philosophical i think um reasons for this the first relates to disembodiment or the separation of the mind and the body kind of like what we 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 briefly touched upon and this is the legacy of the philosopher the um enlightenment philosopher uh René Descartes right René Descartes is responsible for mind and body dualism he's kind of like the father of scientific observation in medicine and this is his his ideas have been revolutionary in allowing us to look at the body to diagnose what's going on with it and to make Tremendous breakthroughs in medical science. But there's a problem. There's a problem because you make the body object, right? And then what happens is you turn the person into an object as opposed to thinking of them as subject, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is this is a problem. It also it also um 
had the um, enlightenment consequence of elevating the mind over the body, right? So things that are related to the body are low. They're related to low instincts, low impulses, low intelligence, right? Just, just, just low quality. Anything that's related to the mind, reason, abstract ideas, knowledge, debate, right? Those are the things that now become elevated. Those are serious. Those are important, right? So when you're an adult, the mind is the thing that you should be focusing on and the body is subordinate, okay? Mm -hmm. Because it's just not as important. That's sort of like an enlightenment thing. This melds a little bit with um, kind of the pure at the same time, sort of we're talking about 15th, 16th, 17th uh, centuries, 18th centuries, sort of like the time of the Enlightenment and coming out of the Renaissance. Um, there's a Puritan, a Protestant Puritan idea about um, the body as the locus of sin and temptation, right? So again, we have in another Western tradition, the elevation of the mind over over the body. It's okay to do sports when you're young and youthful and immature and naive, and they can be kind of like fun and amusing recreations. But once you hit adulthood, it's time for serious work. It's time for discipline. It's time for order, right? It's time for productivity. And if you just use the body, A, that's, that's, that's negative. That's sinful. It's... um. Again, because the body is related to temptation and sin, and it's a, a source of weakness, source of weakness in a lot of uh, of Christian thought um, coming up to the 19th century. So I think we're still living with those hangovers. I really do. Because what we tell young kids who don't make it, we don't even, we don't, A, we don't give them a landing spot. So we don't provide them right. with places to go and play at a mid-high competitive level because you're not just going to say to a person who is an elite athlete, hey, go play rec, right? They, they, they don't right. want to play. They don't want to play rec. Um, they, 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 don't, they, they still want that competition. So there's not enough of these like middling tiers where we can provide sort of like a soft landing for a lot of, for, for a lot of these um, for a lot of these athletes. But what's even worse, and I think that this creates a lot of the mental health issues and ultimately leads to this phenomenon of a lot of guys sitting in triple XL jerseys, like cheering at their cheering and watching sports, as opposed to like trying to make sure that they can keep playing sports themselves. Society mocks us. You thought you were going to be a pro athlete. Did you James? Like you thought you could really get to D one. Whatever made you think that, did you know that only like 1% of 1% ever make it pro? Were you delusional? You're not even that big of a guy. You're not fast. You're not that strong. Why did you ever think that you could do this? So not only yeah. do we crush your dream, we make fun of you at the same time and say, you you were kind of foolish to ever think that that body of yours was ever going to take you to a place of high achievement or of excellence. So when you put those things together, you've got sort of like the childish, the childishness of it, of sports related to the the historical legacy of Rene Descartes and sort of of like puritanism you mix that with a mocking of what is essentially identity death um we, it's like a psychological or sociological concept we have identities right we have conceptions of ourselves when you're a teenager and you're an athlete that's how you view yourself when you look in the mirror you see athlete i'm a competitor 
then it's like in an instant it's taken away from you so what you what actually is occurring is this type of identity death and it's a dramatic sudden and traumatic death and we don't give any space for healing we don't give any space for verbalizing this and then whenever somebody like maybe starts to suggest hey like this kind of hurt me a little bit we laugh at that person yeah. So I think this has a lot to do with explaining why we've got so many sports fans who are unfit and unhealthy and who don't play sports themselves. They want to hold on to that vestige of athletic identity that they had when they were growing up, but they're not able to translate that into participation as an adult. And so they settle for this cheap, consumptive uh, identity, which is ultimately. I think in part a type of self-hatred and self-punishment because the body that gave you status, the body that gave you pride when you were a teenager and you were competing, you're not allowed to have that anymore as an adult. You're not allowed to use that body as a source of pride. And I think a lot of this is self-loathing. A lot wow. of this I, behavior is a type of is a type of self-hatred and self-punishment that is unconscious that people don't understand that they're doing because they don't understand the the, the trauma that occurs with having this identity death then being mocked in society because we just view sports as these childish things that should be left left to the youth unless you're a pro, unless you're the absolute top of the top. Matt's uh, really good stuff, Jordan. I, th- I think really insightful. I think that the historical context is really important or, or at least insightful in kind of thinking about these things. And I I love this idea of identity death, and I think it's really interesting, and I think we can expand that. I think we have a major challenge that we're going through right now with specialization. You know, if a, if a child shows some sort of aptitude early in something, I think it's really natural to want to push them down that down that hole and say, "You are this. You are a great musician. You are really intelligent. You're going to really do something wonderful." and intelligentsia and academics one day you're a really great athlete you're gonna you're gonna go d1 you're gonna make it but we can't wait to see what wonderful things you're gonna do down down the line that's an awful awful big burden for for young kids to to shoulder and i think like you were alluding to with sports i think we can expand that to anything else academics or any other hobby um that could become consuming of of the identity and just with you know i grew up with a a group of friends many of whom are are and were uh, still are incredibly intelligent. They were, you know, 4.5, 4.6 students in high school told how, how wonderful life was going to be for them because they're so smart. And then I think when they get out into the world and it's like, yeah, no one really cares about that anymore. Like wh- what can you, what can you do for, for this company? What can you do for me? Same with sports. Oh, really? You were, you were a all-star football player. That's wonderful. You didn't go D one, and uh, we're not playing football here. We're making widgets. So, so what? And and I think that's tough for people to deal with, especially when you're young, when you had a whole identity, a whole view of yourself tied into kind of one thing. And you see it even with professional athletes when they retire; everything just kind of falls apart for them, and a lot, sometimes bad things happen. I think the same thing happens with kids. It's just not as prof- you know, it's not as as big because they they weren't doing it for maybe 30 years. They were doing it for 15. Um, so really interesting. I, I think that's a fascinating concept. And and I think you tied it together nicely. 
it's a good point that you make because um, we all recognize this in the elite athletes. It's like when Michael Jordan retires, we kind of know that there's an identity crisis because he's not going to be the greatest player of all time anymore. And that's how he's defined himself. You know, like you see this all the time, like Usain Bolt, right? The world's greatest sprinter. He retired from sprinting. What was the first thing that he did? He tried to become a soccer pro soccer player because that right. was his first athletic dream. Guys like uh, Chris Chelios, right? Who, who literally he's a hall of fame. He's a hall of fame NHL defenseman riding an AH, a minor league bus, at the age of 48 because he loves to compete. And then he tried to become a bobsled, uh, an Olympic level bobsled athlete, right? Like these athletes don't know how to, there's a lot of athletes just don't know how to give it up. Right. Because when they do, what is there, what is there to fall? What is there to fall back on? We obviously see that in the greats and in the elites, but you're you're hundred percent right that this is occurring every day for millions and millions of people, Right. When they have yeah. to hang up those cleats or hang up that equipment for the very final time in competition, and we don't say anything, we don't give them space to, we don't give them space to vocalize. Like, well, what am I supposed to do? We don't properly um, prepare them to transition. Right. You know, I was a high, very high level soccer player when I was a um, when I was a teenager, and I had always grown up with kind of like an athletic identity. Played sports. That's what all of our friends. That's what all me and my friends would do um, for all of our free time. I got injured my final two seasons, a horrible foot injury, a horrible knee injury. And I, I, I knew that my time as an athlete was sort of coming to an end. And I transitioned that into becoming a musician. Um, it was a different kind of an aspiration, uh, a different kind of a goal. And it sort of synced well with leaving high school, going to university, like there's a new transformation. And I'm not suggesting that people need to hang on to the glory days or it's like, oh, I peaked in high school. I don't, that's not healthy either. No. But what we need to do is slowly transition our identities into something else. But one of the things that was problematic for me was I didn't have an outlet for that physical identity. It's like, yeah, now, okay, so I'm not an athlete. I'm a musician, but I still love sports and I don't know how to reconcile that love with now what I'm doing. So I fell into that similar trap. This was the period of time when I watched the most sports on TV, when I involved myself in playing the most amount of fantasy sports. We didn't have legalized sports betting like we do, uh, like, like Canada does now. Um, So, and I'm not a big gambler, so I never wanted to do that. But uh, that's the moment when, in order to reconcile not playing, but this idea of myself as an athlete, that's when I consumed the most sports that I ever, that po- possible. Mm-hmm. And it was only due to kind of like a little bit of a health incident that I had in my mid twenties that I was just like, Oh my gosh, like sitting around all day is not, is not helping my body. And I got to get back to, to doing something. And then I just, fumbled around in the dark like well i i hate the gym i don't like the gym and i don't like exercise like lifting things moving them from one place to another is not some not not my idea of a good time i it's very i have a lot of resistance i don't like the gym i don't like waiting i don't like being dependent on other people to to kickstart myself so i was just trying to experiment with all these different ways of moving my body and as a former soccer player running was something that was pretty pretty natural to me so i decided eh, maybe i'll try doing some running um and then a friend told me hey you like running why don't you go out to this provincial park on the outskirts of the city and go on a trail run i've been out there to do some runs and it's really light nice you might really enjoy it 
So I said, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm trying anything. The second I was on that trail, I knew what I, I, I found it. I found like, this is how I need to give my, this is the out, this is the physical outlet that I need. This is what I've been missing. It's giving me all that I want in terms of, I love the motion. I, I really feel like I'm being tested and being challenged and I can see myself being like progressing. Like, I don't know where the end stage is. I can see myself achieving and improving for 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 a long for a, for a long time. It's like I've got a place now I can assert an identity. I have a place where I can find achievement and test myself. And ultimately that's the transition that we need to make into our adulthood. Less of this playing sports for status and for finding our you know like finding out who we are and sorting ourselves and ranking ourselves and and coming to terms with with becoming an adult or, or just learning as a kid to this place that we can use as an adult to continuously push ourselves, but also understand that it's, it's in a limited form. It, it, it's not going to be the same. Right. Um, like I can't go back and play hockey the way I used to. I can't go back right. and play soccer the way that I used to. If I really want that intense competition, there are still places for me. I can, I can sign up for, for races. Uh, I can push myself in, in, in other sports, but there has to be a maturity. There has to be a realization that yes, we are in a transition. Yes, we're moving through different stages of our lives and sports meant something at one point. Now they have to mean some, something else. And I think that by tying it to that original idea that we, in, that we started out with, why sport? Well, we use sport to become the best versions of ourselves. I think that once we can get this, if we can get this message broadly out to people and also provide them with creative outlets to start trying new types of sports or new types of bodily motions and movements that they might fall in love with again, I think this is going to go a long way to solving that problem of identity death and then mental health and physical health issues that afflict people who say they love sports. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought of a couple of things while you were talking there. One is... You're, for you, it's trail running, maybe. For me, it's tennis. I, I love tennis. I played this morning. It's it's a good way to connect with friends or family members. I play with my dad once a week, which is really cool. But what's interesting is every year that goes by, it's a little bit harder to find people to play with. Mm. And that's been very frustrating as, as I've gotten older. But the second thought that I had is I was never like a super elite athlete. I was always fairly athletic and and played sports my whole life, pretty much. A client of mine, her sister was competing at a track and field event here in town. So she asked if I'd, I'd join them. Um, so I did. And it was fascinating. Uh, it was an all-age meet. So there were, there were kids all the way up to 80s, 80 and 90-year-old competitors. And I told myself as I was watching that, I've never been an elite athlete, but I'm going to one day because I'm going to outlast everybody and I'm going to keep training. I'm going to be one of these 85-year-olds out here who's still still getting after it and still challenging themselves. And, and I realized it, the longer you can go, the, the automatically by default, the higher up uh, you're going to end up. So I thought that was really cool and, and frankly inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it, and it goes to show, right, that the intensity required in sport, right, has a cutoff. And the longer I think you can stay in contact with that intensity, does it have to be through being in sanctioned comp competition? I don't think, I don't believe it has to be. I think for most people, they probably need it. Um, yeah. Just because 
there's a very select few of us who can really like self-start and motivate ourselves just through sheer, the sheer internal will to do it. Most of us need a community. Most of us need people to surround us to help us get up when adversity hits, right? Um, And competition just does that because it doesn't give you an excuse. It's like, well, shoot, I got this race date and I got to get ready for it. Otherwise, I'm not going to complete it. And then what does not completing it tell tell about yourself, right? It says a lot. And and it's not the sense that, oh, you just because you can't do the physical theme thing makes you like a bad person. It's the fact that, no, you set a date and you didn't prioritize your time to make sure that you could fulfill your obligation. And it's right. whether that's a sport thing or not a sport thing that's irrelevant. But that's essentially like that's what a date does to you. It makes you accountable to yourself so that you'll hold your so that that you will keep the promises that you made. A lot of people just it's very difficult to do that outside of some kind of an external anchor or an external orienting factor, which is why I think people need to be competing in sports continuously even though I personally haven't competed in sports for probably what 15, 15 plus years. Um, but I, I think I'm, I, I'm a rare, I think I'm a rare breed. Um, like I just set an internal goal for myself. Like instead of signing up for a race, which is something I wanted to do, but was complicated. We'll say in Canada up until maybe this, the summer even, um, I just, I've got my own goals. Like I've got things that I want to hit only for, for, for me to prove to myself that I, that I can do it. Um, and I will, I will achieve those goals because I won't let myself down. Uh, and I've been right. doing that consistently, but that's a very difficult thing to ask of people who have also, who just need to get off the couch in the first place. You know what I mean? Um, I agree. Like, I, I think there's something to be said for, for the, the community element as well. Like, like you said, some people need that support. They need that encouragement. They just need someone to not let down. So just by, by being on a team or, or even if they're not necessarily a team, but they're competing at the same time or whatever, uh, there, there's just another, another force to kind of help get people, uh, you know, get people motivated. And I, and I think that, that, that can be really important. And here's an idea for, for anybody who's wondering how in the world you could maybe get started on, on something like this. And I think Jordan, you'll, you'll appreciate this. This goes back several years ago. I was, like I said, I was finding trouble having, uh, you know, getting people to join me in, in playing sports. And I was having a hard time getting people together to play pickup games. And I just missed that stuff so much. Um, I decided to, to elevate things a little bit. So I got with my brother-in-law who's, um, about three years younger than me. Um, and, told him, you get a group of friends. I'm going to get my friends, the, the old guys, and we're going to do uh, a, a weekend of Olympic activities. So um, now some of these were drinking games, so, so they, they don't count. But we played um, a bunch of sports. I mean, we played tennis, uh, basketball, volleyball. We've now done this two different times. And I, I'd rather not talk about the results. It wasn't, wasn't good for the old guys. Um, but it was just a great weekend of competition. Things got heated sometimes, uh, just people going all out, uh, the camaraderie, both within the team and across teams. It was just a really cool way to, to connect with other people. And, and I think that's something that so many people are missing, especially over the last two years, two and a half years. And, and I think that's a cool way if you do have friends who are interested in doing something like that. Take a couple days and, and just make it a fun thing. Make it a fun event and get people moving. And then maybe that'll kind of ignite that fire for people to say, hey, this was fun. Like, I've, I forgot how good it felt to, 
to compete and trash talk and, and, yep. and have fun. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's uh, my big thing. And, and motivation is good. Motivation is not as good as discipline. Discipline's good, but discipline in what direction? You can become a bully to yourself if all you're doing is disciplining yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like we don't – if you're if, – if, think about a teacher. that All they do is yell at you. All they do is discipline you. Yeah, you're going to get your work done. Sure. Like you will get the outcome, but are you going to be happy about it? Are you going to resent that teacher? Are you going to be motivated to do your best or are you just getting it done because, right? That's right. the difference. So, so discipline is good, but we have to make sure that the discipline itself is coming from the right perspective and is moving us in the right direction. So this is why I start with love. Love is like the, the foundational element in all this. If you love what you're doing, no matter what it is, the sacrifices that you've got to make in order to do that thing, they're easy. They're so easy to make because whatever that activity is, you, 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 you're so driven to do it. All of those things become unimportant, whatever they are, mm-hmm. right? When you love mm-hmm. something, you create an obvious hierarchy of value. And love also doesn't mean it's always positive, right? You all, you, you sacrifice for love. Like thinking about the relationships that you have, like you love your family, but you're not happy with them all the time. Right. You love your you love your wife, um, but sometimes you fight. Right. You sacrifice part of you. Maybe I really want to win this argument, but that might mean I'm sleeping on the couch for a week and then maybe that (laughs) creates discord in my house. So I will swallow my ego. I will sacrifice. Right. Because I love this person and whatever it is. The relationship is more important than whatever that individual that individual victory is, right? So we understand how love compels us to sacrifice in our relationships, but we don't oftentimes make that conscious extrapolation to the activities that we engage in. But it's the same process. So if I love to trail run, I know that it takes me X amount of time to go out to drive to one of these trails. It takes me X amount of time to run. Then I got to get back. If I want to do that, but I still want to be a good father and I still want to be a good husband, well, now what are the things that get dropped out of my day? It's like TV. It's like scrolling social media, right? It's the things that aren't aren't important and that aren't moving me towards a better place in my life. Those are the things that immediately get put on the chopping block, right? And I love and I love trail running, so I do this willingly. I'm happy to give away these things because I just, all I want to do is go out on the trails as often as often as I can, right? So the discipline of, you know, getting rid of those, those low, low, the, those, those low rewarding activities, right? It's easy for me to be disciplined, but if it was something I didn't want to do, I'd start to resent the fact that I'm not able to watch that TV show I really like. Because now I got to go do this thing that I don't want to do. But I'll go do it because I'm disciplined. Well, you're going to hate yourself after. Like, we all know that you're going to start hating yourself. Yeah, after, it's just, it's not going to work long term. It's not working. Yeah. Long, it's not working long term. And, and, you know, that's just to tie in back, going back to the, to, to the wealth piece and even, even the money piece a little bit. I, I find that people do the same thing. They, they set these goals that are very short sighted and they make these sacrifices that are, big sacrifices and giving up things that they they really enjoy but they can't continue that for very long it's a very short-sighted goal and it's not sustainable 
and they ultimately fall back into a position to where they've, they've given up any progress they might have made during that time. So if, if we could, Jordan, I want to go back to something you said a few moments ago about bullying ourselves and, and even the example you used with a teacher who's just, you know, just so hard on somebody, it kind of zaps any motivation they might have. That really reminded me of Galway's Inner Game of Tennis, which I mentioned I read fairly recently. And he talks about self one and self two and self one being this coach, this internal coach. And that's that voice, you know, when I hit a, a terrible forehand that says, gosh, you know, you idiot, that was a terrible shot. Like y- y- your forehand is awful, you know, and then self two is fully capable of hitting the ball well, but starts to c- succumb, I guess, to the, to the, to the voice of self one kind of bullying, telling you how, how bad you are. And it can, it can start to amplify, you know, at first it might be, Oh, that was an awful shot. Then you hit another one and then it's your forehand's terrible. Then you hit another one and it's like, why are you even playing tennis? You're a terrible tennis player, you know? So, so it gets worse and worse and worse. And I think that that's a kind of a trap that we can fall into. And that's one of the things though, that I love about competition. It's, you're in competition with yourself as well to to squash that voice and to really just focus on the task at hand. And that's something I've focused on in my tennis game is just like focus on the point. Don't start thinking about the last point. Don't start thinking about the next point. Don't start thinking about the score. Play every point um, and, and don't overthink it and don't beat yourself up, but also don't get too proud when you do something well. Like just keep playing. You know, I think I think that's something we can all learn from not just in sport but also across the board, you know, not getting too high on yourself, not getting too down on yourself and and not worrying about the past or the future and kind of being in the moment and doing the best you can uh, in that time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a golfer. So the way you said that was just immediately relevant to me. And if anybody out there plays golf, you'll know exactly, exactly what that is. That that's I'm retired. That's that. Well, it's because self one rules on the golf course, right? Anytime, <laughs> the, no this, doubt. This is why golf. This is what I I I think golf is the best sport, um, for a lot of different reasons. But that's one of them is because it's the most. It's it is it is a mental game disguised as a sport because all it does is pit you against self one for an entire eighteen holes. All you're doing is coming up against your self doubt. All you're doing is coming up against this internal voice that is essentially there to undermine what you're doing on the golf course. And this is one of the reasons why I hate golf so much. This is one of the reasons why people hate golf is because it so obviously (laughs) does this to people. People who don't care about golf go out to a course and then within the first or second hole, they've never been so angry in their lives because they can't make this silly little white ball do what's so easy in hitting it down this wide expanse of green, right? It should be, it should be easy. And then it's not obviously. And then people give up. Most people who start out, like if you've never played an 18 hole round of golf before in your life and you just go out to a course and you play 18 holes, I got news for you. You're not finishing 18 holes. There's no chance you're finishing 18 holes. It's too difficult for you. Um, and it's the mental game that does it to you. Like it's, it's amazing. So, oh, when yeah. you, so when you say like that, that's one of the values of sport is it, it, it brings us into contact with our weaknesses, but it gives us the ability to turn those weaknesses into strengths, but we've got to be 
honest with ourselves, right? And that's what sport does. It brings us, it brings us into stark um, understanding or or appreciation of what we're good at and what what we're not good at. Like when you're playing tennis and you're matched up against the superior opponent, you're not returning that serve, right? You're not able to cover the baseline to get to everything when you do get into a, a rally a rally situation, and it sucks. And you feel bad <laughs> because yeah. it's obvious that this guy yeah. or girl on the other side is just taking it to you and it doesn't feel good. Right. And that's, that's what's, that's what's such a cool thing about sport, right? Is it, is it, it, it forces us into direct contact with suffering, with struggle. And it's in a way that we just understand that other activities can't do for us. Like it's just so obvious in sport, like with the tennis example, I was just, I was just talking about, it's obvious that you're struggling. It's obvious that you're having kind of a bad go when someone's beating you up on the court like that. Um, And I think that this is such a valuable part of sport being this incredible vehicle towards personal development, growth, and, and aiming us towards our, our best potential. Because if you are able to become responsible for those weaknesses I got to get use the tennis example. I got to practice more. If this guy is that much more powerful than me, then what maybe I just have to work on my angles a little bit better. You know, I have to play more defensively as opposed to trying to be aggressive. There's course corrections. You have to adapt. You have to modify. You've got to expose yourself to the parts that you're not measuring up to in order to become better at that activity. And it's so obvious in sport or in exercise or in physical training, you want to lift a specific amount on the bar. You got to work up to get there. You want to run a sprint under a particular time. You got to work, you got to work, you got to work to get there. Right? So sport brings us into contact with weaknesses, but also gives us this incredible power. If only we take responsibility in, in giving us an avenue to then turn those weaknesses, turn those losses into eventual positives, into eventual victories. Love it. Love it. And I kind of want to shift gears just a touch and talk about another element or aspect of sports that I find interesting. I know we all, or at least most of us had some, some like childhood heroes, right? For me, for me, like growing up, it was Deion Sanders. He was like just this incredible athlete, you know, prime time. I mean, he was, yeah, he was flashy and showy, but he could back it up. Um, I even I even took some uh, some penalties for high stepping and stuff like that when I was a kid, trying to trying to be like Dion. So, you know, today, I mean, I still would say I have some some sports heroes. I mean, for me now, um, Novak Djokovic is is to me the ultimate competitor, um, a guy who just puts everything into the game, takes care of his body in a way that I think few athletes in the world in any sport do. Just really. Um, you know, he's an inspiration and, and someone I love watching compete, but I think sports also, and I think you said this kind of allows to be the hero of our own lives, even if it's in a small moment. So can you just talk about sports heroism and, and, and what it means both kind of on the, on the first level where seeing other people maybe as, as icons and someone to emulate, and then also more on a personal internal level. Yeah, absolutely. So this is another element. If you ask why sports, Another answer that I could give is for emulation and inspiration. And this is why the athletes were praised in the ancient Greek world. It's pretty interesting. The ancient Greeks, for the individualist sort of society, relative to their contemporaries that they that they created, they didn't build statues to the people who you might think deserved the statues. They didn't build statues for their politicians. 
smart people. Politicians, yeah, really. Politicians don't deserve statues, but but you don't want to build them for for politicians because it's it, it just creates this self serving um, prophecy. They also didn't build statues to generals, and this is kind of intriguing because you think, well, who else? Well, like, that might be the person who deserves a statue the most. It's like you saved this, you saved our city from being destroyed. Like incredible. They didn't give it to the military heroes either. Who did they build individual statues for? Athletes, Olympic champions the ones who were the best of the best got statues in their home cities this is really interesting Mm -hmm. it's 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 really interesting and it shows us that emulation is a big part of this and representation like what does the athlete represent the athlete represents transcendence over struggle and there was a religious component to this for the ancient greeks as well like um athletics derive out of mythology and for the ancient Greeks, athletic competition was a religious rite. The, these were performed w- uh, alongside religious festivals, were dedicated to the gods. The Olympic fest, like the Olympic festival, is held at the foot of Mount Olympus, where the Olympian gods resigned. All of the athletes have to go into the temple of Zeus and swear, like, and basically do some sort of like a prayer um, uh, to Zeus and offering. Um, these are not just secular things. These are related to the deepest elements of religion. And religion, ultimately, if we're trying to think in a representational uh, way, religion basically is a way to tell us how to act in the world. It's like it's a morality play. What's right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. So, so athletes then point us towards the good. They show us what we could become if only we dedicated ourselves, embraced the sacrifices that are necessary to get us to that level of achievement, and then worked tirelessly in order to 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 make that make that dream a reality, because that's what the athlete obviously symbolizes, and that's why even today we look up at athletes, right? Because we understand, hey, you've done something incredible, you've done something that almost nobody in the world can do, and what has allowed you to do this is your hard work your determination things that are things that are inside of you these characteristics that i can ha- that i have access to myself right i might not be a prime time right but i can take <laughs> less and, and i love prime time too by the by the way so awesome i even cheered for him in the world series when he was on the atlanta braves going against the toronto blue jays and like oh i grew up very close to toronto and that's that's about as close to like a national mythology as the Blue Jays winning those back-to-back World Series in 92-93. So it's a, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, be, you were a traitor a little bit. Yeah, I was six. So it's like, it's not that, <laughs> like, I don't know how much of a traitor I could really be, but like, I just love to Depends prime. on who you ask. Yeah, fair, fair enough, right? Fair <laughs> enough. We've seen the vindictiveness and pettiness of Canadians on display in the past two, two, two years, <laughs> two plus years. So you're right. Fair, fair, po- fair points, James, fair points. But, like, I love the idea of Deion Sanders, like, flying on a plane from the NFL to then go and play in the yeah. World Series and, like, be excellent in both. Um, it's incredible, absol- yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so then we have this idea of emulation, right? Why should we emulate this? Well, it's this idea of transcendence. And this is what allows you to think about athletics as um, letting you be a hero in your own story because what does the what does the hero do the hero transcends like the the universal hero's journey story is essentially right like there's a problem there's a mystery somebody decides that they're going to sacrifice in order to go out 
fix the problem, find the new information. In that process, they lose a part of themselves, right? Oftentimes, like, we could whatever like th that can be like a part of your characteristic that can sometimes be like a physical body part like, yeah there's you, some sacrifice there's some sacrifice it could be your friends that you might be the only person returning right everybody else doesn't make it back but then when you get back with this new knowledge with this new information with this new creativity it's something that benefits the community as a whole right that's the the basics of the basics of the hero's journey so the athlete is this motif of a hero they sacrifice, they struggle. The new information that they bring us is that, oh my gosh, this is possible with our bodies. I didn't even know we could do this. This is why the Greeks kept meticulous records. They always wanted to know who was the best, who ran the fastest, who jumped the longest, right? Um, so that if somebody broke that record, right, this was indicative of the, the potential of humanity being transcended. It's like the four minute mile, right? Right, right. We didn't believe that the four-minute mile was physically possible. Like, you can run a mile in four minutes and .00001 seconds, but you cannot get over it. You cannot get over Dick Forsbury, sorry, not Dick Forsbury. He's the guy who did the high jump. My high apologies. jump, yeah. yeah, Ro yeah. Roger, ba Roger Bannister, pardon me, uh, Sir Roger Bannister, Sir Dr. Roger Bannister, <laughs> neuroscientist knight, guy's like an absolute legend, breaks the four-minute mile within, like, a month like two other people had done it it was a psychological barrier it had nothing to do with our physical capabilities it had everything to do with what we thought was possible to be to be achieved now hundreds of people run four minute miles every year it's like something that high school track runners do you yeah know? and it's and i think what three now now the record is like in the 340s or something like that or something crazy it's crazy. It's like it's the same thing that just happened with the Lord Kipchoge breaking the the two hour threshold with the marathon. He ran right. a marathon in an hour and fifty nine minutes and in fifty eight seconds or some ludicrous thing. Like I don't think people realize how fast that is. So if you've it's absurd. If you, if you run on a treadmill, set your treadmill to thirteen point one speed. And Buddy ran that for two hours straight. That's what he did. It's unbelievable. What do you yeah, think that's about? incredible. I had a treadmill in my basement, and it didn't even go to thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that's how it's, that's how that's how fast it is. But now, what is what is what is the load Kipchoge shown us? The body can do something. It's abs that you thought was un it's, it's unbelievable. It's literally unbelievable. Yeah. Well, and what's fascinating in in both those situations, there were scientists of all types saying. This is not physically possible. We've taken this data. We've looked at what the human body, we've looked at lung capacity. We've looked at uh, metabolism. We've looked at all these things. It's not physically possible. It's never going to happen. Flat out wrong. <laughs> so that's the idea of transcendence, right? The athletes show us that individual transcendence is possible because they're break, they're doing things that we don't think is, are even possible, that any human could do. And the ancient Greeks... When an athlete um, was victorious at the Olympics or they set a record, they, they likened it to touching the fingertips of the gods. You momentarily transcended mortality to enter into the divine realm. And that's sort of like the hero's journey. It's like the athlete goes beyond, brings something back to us, and then inspires us to emulate them. So, so, so we get inspired by the elite athletes to become heroic but what does that look like right when you are training and you 
smash through a previous limit that you thought was un was unachievable, you've now transcended yourself. You've reached a new plane. So if you're, let's say we're just, let's say we're just, let's say running. I never thought that I could run five kilometers, whatever it is. So here's my limit. My ceiling is here. What happens when I run five and a half kilometers? Well, now this is my floor. I've just transcended to a new level. Right. That's how sports or physical activity or exercise allows us to become heroes. It allows us to engage in personal transcendence over artificial limits that we put on ourselves. I love that. Yeah. And, 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 and it can be simple too. Like for me, even when I'm just rallying with someone, just, just messing around on the court, just getting some good exercise, there are these little moments. Like one of the things I love to do, I love to chase down. Even if someone hits a ball out of bounds, if we're just hitting, I don't care. I, like I want to try to get to that ball. I, I love the challenge of just chasing down a ball that they don't think I can get to. And sometimes I don't even think I can, but I love, I love to try. And there are times when I'll get to a ball that I didn't expect to get to. And like, there's just this euphoric moment of like, man, that was, that was incredible. Like for a moment, I was an elite athlete. I was, I, I did something I didn't even think I could do. And that, that's really rewarding in, in, a, in a whole lot of ways to, to kind of do something that you maybe uh, would have said as a, as a personal limitation. So good and stuff. Then, and then this is, this is the really important part that doesn't stop on the field. That doesn't just like, it's not related just within the athletic context. It's not like, oh, I just, I just did, I just did this thing I never thought I could do. And it only stays in the physical. No, no, that breaks out. It breaks out into the mental and it breaks out into the spiritual, into the soul as well. Mm -hmm. It allows you to have resiliency. It allows you to stand up on principle. It allows you to be creative. It allows you to take risks in other areas of your life because you've got this confidence of knowing that even if I do struggle, even if I falter even if i fail a few times along the way i am resilient i have grit i have determination i'm gonna make it i'm gonna make it work i believe in myself to transcend so it's not just the fact that you do it physically it's not and you you see this like countless times with with the individuals who go into the gym thinking my body is out of shape and then they stick with it. They're consistent. They transform their bodies and they transform their bodies in these incredible ways. You know, you got people losing hundreds of pounds and oh, becoming yeah. amazing. It's incredible. But after they've gone through this transformation, I'm willing to bet 100% of these people, and if it's not 100, it's like 95% plus, they will tell you, I went in to change my body, but what I really did was change my entire being. It was not the body that changed. Yes, the body changed, but what really happened was I gained confidence. I gained belief in myself. I gained resiliency, right? And then they'll tell you about all of the ways in which they've applied that to other areas of their lives. And I can tell you just personally, living um, as an academic in the university and say not being part of the dominant ideology or the dominant culture in university it's not a very easy place to live and i don't live there anymore thank goodness but i found myself in my what second year of being a prof of being like on a faculty with full salary uh and, and everything embroiled my university became embroiled in an international free speech scandal this was back in 2017 um 
and you've got a choice to make. It's like I've been following along with some of the stuff that had been happening in the UK and the US, and I was against censorship. I'm a big free speech uh, proponent. So what was I going to do? Am I going to just be quiet, not stand up? No, I was... I was like, this is my chance. This is my chance to contribute to the fight. And this was after about, um, I would suggest four years of four, four years of trail running. Um, and the person that I was before I started trail running, I don't believe would have been strong enough to stand up and take the risks that I did, um, by just supporting the student in question, joining with two other profs out of 600 to support that student. Um, I didn't have, I don't I didn't have tenure, so I don't, I didn't have, I didn't have protection. I probably got put on a black ball list um, that, that, that really affected my ability to move forward in the university and to gain tenure in the, in the, in the future. But that was worth it. I was willing to make the sacrifices. I was willing to take the slings and the arrows to stand up for what I believed in um, because I had such confidence in myself and my abilities um, and I, and I truly believe that that competency was generated and nurtured, uh, through trail running, because before then I would have been much more, um, apt to fall into a victim mindset and to blame the world for the things that were going on in my life and not take responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. but once you start learning to take responsibility for your actions and then you see yourself achieving, well, then it's easy to take on temporary discomfort in order to stand up for what you believe in and so it's like what do i want to look back on 10 years 20 years 30 years 40 years what i want to tell my grandkids what i want to tell my kids did i just go for temporary comfort like everybody told me to do or did i do the thing that was most important did i do the right thing standing up for my principles and beliefs doing something that was extraordinarily difficult brought me into in in into contact with immense discomfort but was ultimately rewarding and 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 then doing that gave me the strength to fight another fight at the university um with the whole vaccine mandate stuff but i i i i I firmly believe if i had not been an athletically inclined person i would have shrunk i would have been weak and i wouldn't have stood up in both of those situations bravo Bravo. And I, and I think that's a testament, Jordan, to, to what we kind of were touching on earlier, that everything is intertwined, like how you behave and act in one area. It's not just isolated. It, it carries over. So if you're not showing integrity in a certain area of your life, that's going to impact everything else you do. You, you may be able to say to yourself like, oh, it was just this one thing, um, you know, but it's not for, for someone who has discipline uh, in one area it's going to be a lot easier for them to be a disciplined investor. It's going to be a lot easier for them to be a disciplined uh, person with their body and take care of themselves. They all tie together. And I think it's, it's just too easy to, to scapegoat things and say like, ah, this is just one thing. It's not that important because, because it all ties together. And that's one of the things I try to talk to about my clients. It's like, if you, if you want to do something with your, with your money, you know, you need to think about your, your life more broadly. What is it you really want to do? Why do you, why do you even want money in the first place or more money or how much do you actually want and why? And I think when you can start from a, from a place of purpose and, and go from there, it's a lot easier to like stick to your values broadly and, 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 you know, kind of across your life. So this is why I wanted to have this conversation because I think, I think the athletic piece and the sport piece, yeah, it's, you know, you could say, Hey, that's just sports. It's just games. And it's, just your, but it, but it's not, it's a lot bigger than that. And, and, and I think that's really important. And I think 
the more people we can get uh, getting out and moving and challenging themselves and, and the more resilient a society we're going to have when we have more resilient people. So, um, bravo and bravo to you for, for sticking to your beliefs, um, in a period where I'm sure it wasn't easy. And, uh, like you said, you took some, you took some pain that, that, uh, you could have avoided had you not done it. And uh, I think that's really important, um, for, for people to do. And I, I've made some decisions over the last couple of years myself that, uh, certainly was not the easy way out, um, either financially or, 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 or otherwise. Um, but I had things that I wanted to achieve that, that would not have been achievable had I just stuck with the status quo and, and stayed comfortable. So, so really good stuff. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, I wanted to, you, you listed some, uh, quotes from Socrates and I, I want to get back to the ancient stuff before we kind of close things out here shortly. Um, there were there were a couple of the of, of quotes about Socrates about the body about physicality about you know competition and stuff. I wanted to uh, read a couple of those and just kind of get your take, maybe put them in modern terms and and why you think those particular things are important. So I'll start with with one that I really really like. For in everything that we do, the body is useful, and in all uses of the body, it is of great importance to be in as high a state of physical fitness as possible. Really interesting. Um, yep, yep. There's this is a great quote, and it basically it, it it builds off of exactly what I was what we were just talking about, right? If you if you are competent in your body, you're going to be competent in other domains of your life, and if you think that you're competent in all these other domains of your life, but you neglect your body, <laughs> well, then you're really not firing on you're not firing on all on all on all of your cylinders. Um, we know this to be true scientifically. We know that your brain is directly connected to your gut through the vagus nerve. So we know that what goes into your body directly affects the way that you think. And if you're feeding it crap, well, then your mind is going to be crap. And if your body is crap, then a lot of your thoughts are also likely going to be crap. What's interesting about Socrates' quote is it's related to the importance of physical fitness for individual men because at any moment's notice, you could be marshaled to serve in the military. Like uh, for the city-states, uh, these were defended by the citizens. Now they were the elite landowning citizens, so it wasn't like everybody. But relative to their contemporaries and their neighbors, this is a really big advance for individualism and uh, for, for, li for, for, for liberty. The idea of citizens voting in assemblies and then defending them um, and then sort of the price of that vote is – military service so if you're right. not physically prepared in socrates's time you're not living up to your obligations as a citizen to defend the city now i think that we can extrapolate that to the modern world um especially for men now i don't think it's exclusive for men but i think men i think men gain a different status from their bodies than women do women <laughs> women gain more status um, on how their bodies look and men uh, derive their status on how their bodies perform. This is sort of more evolutionarily derived. If you think about hunter-gatherer societies, um, and that's not to say that that's everybody, but we're just talking in general patterns here. In a modern context, if we're not physically fit, we're probably not the capable leaders of our homes that we could be, right? Uh, we may be able to provide lots of money because we got a great job, but if you're overweight and um, you have low energy, what are you doing when you get home? Are you playing with your kids? Probably not. 
did your kids ever see you emulating healthy behaviors? No. So what are they going to grow up to be? Unhealthy. So you can provide in one way, you can provide lots of money, right? And then you can send your kids to the best private schools and you can hire them the best tutors and put them in the best sports clubs and, and all that stuff. <laughs> but if you're out of if you're overweight and you're low energy and you're out of shape, you're not the best father you could be. Not even close. You're not the best leader of your house. Not even close. And you probably have some of that internal resentment and self-hatred that's brewing up inside of you, which is then going to leach out into other areas, other areas of your life. So Socrates quote, while he's mainly talking about sort of like military preparedness, we can just think about it in terms of what are our responsibilities and obligations to the people that depend upon us. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And the second one I want to touch on, I think this, this quote, I think really captures the, the gist of this conversation. Surely a person of sense would submit to anything like exercise so as to obtain a well-functioning mind and a pleasant, happy life. I mean, that's kind of a mic drop there, in my opinion. Oh, it's, I'm just reading this too. And I just love, I love this quote. Surely a person of sense, right? So this, and, and for Socrates, the height, uh, like the highest virtue, the most important thing, the thing that makes us human, like the highest thing, like the, the most important thing that we do is reason. Socrates is all about pure reason and logic and the diet, you know, and the and the um, the dialectic, right? Um, so for him to then suggest like that it's irrational for you to neglect your body is not a light. This is, this is a not a light comment. Uh, that he's making and again it makes perfect sense if you willfully neglect a part of yourself then what you're doing is you're neglecting the whole of yourself as you said off the top everything is connected the ancient greeks believed mind and body were connected they were the opposite of rene descartes they were not dualists right they were they believed in in an embodied conception uh, plato was a little bit different but but there's some problems with Plato. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's some problems with Plato. That's okay. Um, so, but 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 this makes this makes incredible. It's an incredibly clarifying and I think like powerful realization when you've got the smartest people, like some of the smartest people, the smartest individuals who've ever lived, like the titans of philosophy, and they're telling us. If you're neglecting your body, you're just wasting your potential. That's essentially what they're saying to us. You're wasting your potential and you've got no right to essentially throw away your talent. You have no right to throw away your responsibility and your obligation to yourself. And that's kind of what he's it's kind of what he's getting at here. It's like if you just stop and think for 1 minute you will realize that you must be doing this. And I think everybody deep down knows it. People, know I, th I think we avoid it sometimes because it's a painful, painful thing to think about and, and you have to accept responsibility. And that's a big accusation from Socrates, but I, th I think it's true. Um, and, and, and I think it's really important to, to come to terms with that truth. Um, you know, I think it's important. Abs absolutely. And, what it does is, as you just mentioned, it puts the responsibility back on you, the individual, right? And it's sad to say in our world, we've been doing a pretty good job of telling everybody you don't need to be responsible for yourself. 
other people right. are responsible for your position. If you're not succeeding in life, it's not anything you did. It's because of X, Y, what, whatever it is. And we can all, we all kind of know what that is in, in our, in our modern, in our modern day and age. And the, so this just, this seeps into everything. Now, instead of being participants in sport, we're consumers and voyeurs because it's just easy and we can offload all of the responsibility onto the other people. This is why we can sit and yell at the TV and our heroes while being while wearing a 4XL jersey with that same person's name on the back and not get the irony and the hilarity of the situation. But actually, you know, like... If it's an outside observer, they're looking like, this is madness. What are you doing? But for that person in that moment, they're involved in some serious, they're involved in some serious cosmic struggle of yelling through the screen at this athlete. Right. (laughs) And it's just, it's, 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 it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate dereliction of duty to yourself to offload responsibilities of excellence um, onto other people. And that's what we do as, as voyeurs of sport. Um, you know, we can be spectators, but I think worst of all, we've become voyeurs. We actively mm. live our lives through the actions of others. And this is like the alt. If Socrates were to come into the modern world, ooh, he would not like that. No, it's, you're not. Now you're not even neglecting your body. You've 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 offloaded that responsibility to somebody else. And that's like the height of negligence in a sense. And, and those people show it in their bad health and their 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 big bodies sorry to say that was a a truly remarkable rant jordan i loved every second of that so (laughs) you're welcome very good stuff and i want to talk about one more thing before we transition to closing this out um yeah i I was reading a a, the stoic philosophy really resonates with me in Mm -hmm. in a whole lot of ways it's certainly not for everyone um and 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 arguably and and you know, there are some weaknesses in, in certain areas and, and certainly some some critiques that I think are fair uh, of the philosophy as a whole. But as far as living my life and like being able to apply various techniques to, to kind of live better and, and find more meaning, the Stoic philosophy really resonates with me. And uh, there was an interesting quote from Seneca that I came across the other day and I was thinking about our conversation and um, I, I thought it kind of uh, wrapped in well. And, and he was actually talking about cold water plunges. That was a big thing back then. It, 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 you know, a lot of people have, have kind of gone back to that. Seneca used to do it um, every single year, kind of to start the new year. It was a way to reset his body, reset his mind, kind of a tradition um, that, that he did. And he said about that, the body should be treated more rigorously that it may be may not be disobedient to the mind. Mm. And I thought, you know, the Stoics are really big on challenging yourself. And um, there are a lot of different ways to do that. But sometimes they would, they were big fans of making yourself uncomfortable. Uh, because when you live a life pure, purely of comfort and luxury, um, it's, it's hard for your mind to kind of stay sound. You can get very complacent. You can start to do things that are, that are not virtuous um, and, and, and things of that sort. Um, they, they weren't against luxury. They were just against luxury dominating your life or, or, or whatnot. So mm. I really like that, that quote. It reminded me, I, I think opposites, um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Opposites are really interesting to me. You know, I love going and working hard, playing tennis for an hour and a half hard, and then coming home and like jumping in a cold shower and just going from like hot, sweaty, disgusting, 
and and then just boom being hit with this rush uh, of of cold and and kind of that the jolt of energy and the same thing i might spend several hours working um really focused you know, hard work writing something that takes up a lot of, of use of, of of the of the mind mm-hmm. and then afterwards you know taking some time to meditate so going from like really focused mind to really kind of a totally unfocused relaxed state of mind um and and i think sport is a really good way to do that to go from your body you know we might be sitting around you know having this conversation i think one of the the best things we could possibly do would be to get up after this and go move and and get the body moving and 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 it'll just feel better i mean when i when i play tennis and then hop in the cold shower that there's no better way that i found to start a day than that i get much more done I feel sharp. I feel ready. Um, I feel more confident. Words and and ideas come to me more quickly than if I just woke up slowly, sat around for most of the morning. Um, So, you know, Seneca, I just love that quote about treating the body rigorously to to keep the body from becoming disobedient to the mind. Mm -hmm. I I love that idea. Uh, And I'm much more a fan of, uh, I'm I'm an Aristotelian. Like when I'm talking about my ideas of sport and philosophy and how they matter and why they're related to virtue and to our characteristics, like I'm, I'm mouthing the words and the the moral philosophies and ideas of Aristotle. Um, And I like Aristotle because he gives a place for us to have our instincts, to have our passions, but also to cultivate higher reasons uh, higher virtues. So he gives us a wide spectrum of things that can be considered positive. So it's kind of like, we all like to eat tasty food. It's okay every once in a while yeah. to eat tasty food. Should you eat tasty food all the time? No. Aristotle is really like the progenitor of the 80-20 split. <laughs> and the Stoics are far more like 100, 100 to 0. And humans don't really operate 100 to 0. Or we don't do it very well. Or we can't do it for very long. You know what I mean? But 80-20 in terms of like I'm going to be – in terms of nutrition, I'm going to eat 80% of my meals are going to be nutritious, healthy, whole food. 20% is going to be what I want, This the stuff that tastes good, the stuff that I get enjoyment from. Like happiness and pleasure, these are important parts of life and we should lean into them. But yeah. they don't they don't dominate us. And there are different tiers of happiness and there are different tiers of virtues and there's different tiers of instincts, essentially. Right. So what Aristotle wants us to do is we, he wants us to aim towards the highest virtues and the highest elements. But he also understands that in reality, we also have to give a voice and a space to these lower elements. Otherwise, we become those bullies to ourselves that end, we end up resenting ourselves. This is why people who try to cut their habits cold turkey oftentimes relapse. It's, you know, it's like I'll go and do CrossFit for three months and then I'm I'm fat next year. Okay. Right. 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 That's so so I like stoicism, but I think stoicism tends towards that all or nothing mentality. And I don't think that's a very healthy way for the vast majority of people to deal with making transformations in their lives or dealing with difficult things. So I like stoicism for its ability to highlight the fact we need to be uncomfortable. But I think it can, I think it tends to push us into that being a bully mentality that I was talking about. And Aristotle starts us out with love and he starts us out with passion. And he starts us out with each individual is aimed towards something different. We're all interested in something different. We all have skills and talents and different things. We should pursue those things that interest us. We should pursue those things that we're talented in. We should do so with a love of doing it. 
So we should be internally motivated. We shouldn't be motivated by wealth or status or things that are on the outside. We should be doing these things for the pure love of doing it. And once we align all those three things together, passion, skill and talent, internal drive and aim towards excellence, anything we do then can become moral. And this is how we can understand athletes as as moral examplars, right? Because they... When you when you do it for the right reasons, so it's like we're not we're not Barry Bonds hitting seventy three home runs on steroids. We're Roger Maris hitting sixty one home runs. Like you know, like like athletes can tilt to immorality clearly, right? But when we see the athlete who is just aiming at excellence and doing it for all the right reasons, and then they achieve something great, it's like, well, wow, wow, that's 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 somebody that we should celebrate. That's somebody we should praise, and that's somebody who I can use as a, as a as a model. Um, so I, I, a bit of a roundabout answer, I guess. You no, no, say. that, no, that's fine. I mean, I I think that's partially a fair critique of stoicism. I mean, that's definitely the most common critique. I think it's it. I think it's taken probably a little too far. I think a lot of people say yeah. like stoicism means don't feel emotion or like push your emotions aside. No. And that's that's definitely not you know, what I think they were saying. I think they were saying, you know, look, in, in the moment, you're going to you're gonna have emotions and that's fine. If somebody dies, they're not saying, that you love, they're not yeah. saying like, don't, don't feel bad, don't feel pain. They're just saying, don't let that pain continue to dominate your life for so long that you're creating new pains for yourself, you know? Yes, yes. And, and, and I really love that, that quote um, and I forget exactly how it goes, but, but Seneca basically said, I'm not, I'm basically in the, in the hospital with you in 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 a in the same room in a different bed. I'm not perfect um and I'm not giving you advice and saying live like me. I'm more saying I got here a few days before you. Here here's what you can expect and here here are some things I've learned. And yeah. I think that's a good way of looking at philosophy as a whole. Like Absolutely. I don't I don't call myself a stoic or say I subscribe to stoicism. Um I try to take the best of those ideas, take the best of other ideas combine them and, and kind of create my own personal philosophy. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's the really cool, cool part about, about philosophy is you can take what works for you and, and use it uh, as long as you're getting better uh, and, and you're gaining wisdom, I think then, then you're achieving the goal. I kind of close out with two questions. So I would like to ask those to you and then we can call it a, a, a wrap. So the first one is, and we, we touched on this already, so you can make the first one pretty quick. But what does wealth mean to you? Wealth is living life on your own terms. <laughs> one sentence answer. I think I think that says it all. Um, and the second one, if you could go back in time, give yourself a piece of advice uh, that maybe would have helped you in some area, what, what would it be? Um, that's a really great question. Um, Trust your gut. Trust your gut more. That would be it. Trust your gut more. Or maybe trust your gut more often. Right. I, it's, it's interesting you said. I actually just recently, I guess it was back a, a while ago, but I, I basically wrote a blog post that was kind of about that. Like we were becoming so reliant on data and information that we sometimes abandon that like gut check. And uh, those yeah. in, that, that gut check is... You know, that's a an evolutionary skill that, that we have. And, and I think it's it's a really important one to, to use. Yep. And it can cause us great pain if we don't use it. 
Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the brain and the, the stomach are connected through one of the most powerful nerves in our body. So <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a real, it's a real, it's a real thing. And I would just say, quiet the brain when the gut is speaking. That would be the advice. Mm. Quiet the brain when the gut is speaking. Don't let the, don't let the brain be the loud mouth in that conversation. <laughs> Where can people find you if they found this conversation interesting or want to learn more about the ancients view on sports or modern sport or, or, or whatever? Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Come find me on Twitter uh, at uh, JB underscore Goldstein. If uh, you're interested in my um, coaching and consulting, kind of what I do with the um, with this ancient knowledge, uh, I do have an academy it has a website the website's a little outdated um but you can certainly get good information there and that is a faya academy faya is p-h-y-a and then academy just how it is uh dot com so you can you can you can find you can find me there uh, but twitter is the best place especially if you want to get in contact with me my dms are open so if you listen to this and you want to reach out um with a question uh, you want to know what it's like to work with me, those types of things. DM is the best, is the best way. Um, you can also email me, I guess. Um, but it's good long email address. So I'll just say DM me on Twitter. <laughs> you, you're a great Twitter follow, by the way. It's been uh, learned a ton just by, by your posts. So appreciate that. Cheers. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words, James. And thank you for, uh, inviting me on. This has been really, really awesome conversation. I love talking, uh, ideas yeah. and sports and then apply and then figuring out ways we can apply it. So this has been really, really awesome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Jordan Goldstein. It was another reminder that living a wealthy life is about much more than money. So get out there and move and connect with your body. Please subscribe to or follow Philosophy if you're enjoying these discussions. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>